All right, all right, all right, all right. Welcome back, listeners, to yet another episode of What Had Happened, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Kimberly, bringing you lesser-known true crime stories. Please don't mind the creak, creak, creak. It's just my seat, seat, seat. I'm not popping off gas, promise. What it do, booze? You know... It's literally the end of October. I know I originally said I was going to, like, you know, ambitiously drop, like, five episodes, but then I was like, you know what? Mm. There's so many different cases to choose from. I think that this medley would be the best way to tie up October. So, you know, I'm wondering what everyone is up to this month. I hope you are all doing very well. I'm recording in real time for this episode, so I know that there are a ton of true crime stories that have been unraveling in the news before us, and I totally encourage you all as What Had Happened members to share your thoughts and comments in the Facebook group. You know, start some dialogues amongst yourselves, talk amongst yourselves, Because I myself am verklempt, okay? So, uh, give you a topic. What is going on? Talk amongst yourselves. Um, Is everyone ready for Halloween? I know that my little coven is ready. The most I've accomplished is procuring costumes for them. But also, you know what I did? I, like, yesterday got out the steamer. It's like, assembling the costumes and stuff for my wee ones and also put some pumpkins out on the porch so that these squirrels can annihilate them because that's how my squirrels roll uh here in anywhere usa listen now you guys listenership has skyrocketed over the past like month and a half and i just wanted to take this time yet again to say thank you thank you thank you you're far too kind hold your applause this is your shout out time to my listeners in dallas texas how are y'all doing down there i hear you are the biggest u.s fans victoria australia good day ontario canada what's up brothers and sisters to the north eh hello england hello hus germany hi western cape south africa and hello leinster ireland i appreciate you all everyone everywhere honestly for lending me your ears thank you thank you thank you for your likes shares and subscribes you all really know how to make a girl feel good about talking about the true crime i hope everyone has been digging the spooky season episodes up and dropping weekly this month so to get you guys caught up I've dropped you some good old Axeman, uh, Tacoma Axeman, Jake Bird, who hexed my throat. Nobody said anything. You guys are too kind. Yo, he hexed my throat. I don't know if you guys noticed that coughing fit there, like, as I was talking about the man being hanged. Mm-hmm. And I also discussed, let's see here, Mayhem. So I talked about Oystein and Varg. Then I also talked about the real Candyman, Dean Carl. And today we're going to talk about something that kind of sort of touches back onto episode number one. But not quite. Because these kids actually 
have the gump had the you know the the they they went through with it. We're talking about parasite, you guys. So back to some business real quick because I skipped around on this script. For those of you who are in the Facebook group, uh, many of you may have seen the posts about the official What Had Happened True Crime podcast website and YouTube channels going up. They are there. There's also an official email address, so feel free to email me about cases you'd like to hear about or, you know, whatever it is you want to say. Like, you know, long-time listener, first-time emailer, I don't know, whatever. Uh, Again... You know, those links are always available in the description box below, along with Facebook, uh, Instagram, Twitter links, of course, all of my references, per the usual. As I told you, we're talking about Parasite, which I'm a mom, so, you know, and also a child, because I wouldn't be here if I didn't come from some thing, people, whatevs. Anyways, uh, as a child and a parent, it kind of hits a little bit hard on both sides, I guess, for me talking about it. So, um, first let me real quick apologize for taking, like, an extra week to drop this episode. I literally had, like, three other options for scripts, and this is just where the dice landed for me. It was easier for me to come together with this and make this happen for you guys. So without further ado, I will be discussing what had happened in four separate cases of parasite. Parasite is defined as the killing of a parent or other near relative. For our first case, Brian Mark Blackwell was born May 1986 to Jacqueline and Sydney Blackwell in West Lancaster, England. Mum Jacqueline was a former antiques dealer and Dad Sydney, aka Big Brian, a retired accountant. The family lived together in an affluent village in the northern suburbs of Liverpool. It's said that the Blackwells doted on their son. Big Brian uh, as Sydney was referred to, and Jacqueline were said to have been overindulgent, overprotective, and controlling of all aspects of their son's life. Brian was described as being smart and a nice boy, if not a bit socially awkward, with his peers, for he spent the bulk of his time under his parents' thumb and in the company of adults. Excellent grades in school came easily to Brian. While his parents would tell everyone that Brian would not just be a doctor, but a surgeon when it was time for university, it's also been said that Big Brian and Jacqueline didn't really put pressure on their son to follow their aspirations for him. Like, they were like, sky's the limit, but they were like, we want you to do this, but at the same time, they were like, you know what, so long as he's like super successful at whatever it is that he does and we can brag about it that's the vibe that I'm getting but that you know I don't know these people they're deceased and I didn't know them prior to that in life but that's just what I'm gauging from this uh so as well as being an exemplary student little Brian as he was known was an under 18 tennis champion at the local club 
Upon graduation, Brian received a scholarship to Liverpool College and was planning to begin studying medicine at the University of Nottingham in the autumn of 2004. So you see, he was going down the road of most likely becoming a surgeon, you know what I mean? But, you know, that was probably to placate mommy and daddy. Brian had a pension for telling what was described as innocuous lies, for example, embellishing his academic achievements. But in April 2004, the lies began to escalate. First in April, after convincing his girlfriend, he was a professional tennis player and making her his manager. Brian wrote her a check for 39,000 pounds when he only had 9 pounds in his bank account. In early May, Brian cashed a 9,000 pound bond his parents invested to pay for his university education to buy his girlfriend a car. In mid-May, Brian applied for 13 credit cards in his father's name and attempted to obtain a cash advance from the bank falsely claiming to be a professional tennis player who needed money to play in the French Open later that summer. Brian wrote on the application form he'd be able to repay the loan with the fabricated salary of £45,000 annually. By mid-June, Jacqueline spoke with a manager of her bank to voice her concerns for her son's behavior. During this time, Brian began planning to take his girlfriend to New York on holiday, and it's believed that coupled with his recent fraudulent and erratic behavior, everything came to a head on July 25, 2004. The day of the murders, little Brian booked first-class tickets from Manchester to New York using Big Brian's credit card for himself and his girlfriend. According to little Brian, that evening, after going out to dinner, Big Brian and Jacqueline returned home. After having a few drinks, Big Brian, according to little Brian, got into an argument with him, which resulted in a fight between the Bryans, as the two were known, as in the living room what happened next is this little brian who had been hanging pictures in his bedroom with a hammer uh when the you know when the argument and then fight began with big brian beat his father to death with the claw hammer he was using he then stabbed his mother upward to 50 times with a kitchen knife It's believed that Big Brian was sitting when the attack began, and he tried to reach a window before falling due to the repeated blows he was given. While the sequence of events that led to the murder are not clear, it is believed that Big Brian and Jacqueline learned of Little Brian's travel plans to the U.S. and attempted to thwart them. After the murder, Brian spent the night at his girlfriend's home, and the following day, July 26th, the couple flew from Manchester to New York City. Brian spared no expense. For the first three nights, they stayed in the presidential suite of the Plaza Hotel for £2,000 a night. Brian had told his girlfriend he was Britain's number one ranked junior tennis player and had received a £70,000 sponsorship from Nike. The couple lived the glamorous life staying in luxurious hotel suite after suite, beginning in Manhattan and then jetting to Miami, Barbados, and San Francisco before returning home to England on August 12th. 
the North American holiday came to roughly 30,000 pounds. Stating that he was locked out of his parents' home as they were on their annual holiday in Majorca, Brian stayed with his girlfriend and her family in Childwell, Liverpool. It wasn't until September 5th that a neighbor reported the strong noxious odor emanating from the Blackwell bungalow and notified authorities. This is when the decomposing bodies of Jacqueline and Sidney Blackwell were discovered. There was so much blood on the walls, police initially thought the couple had been shot. When Brian was arrested by authorities hours later at his girlfriend's family's home, police discovered the rubber grip of a hammer and the handle of a knife in his sports bag. He told them initially that he was under the impression that his parents were on holiday and had no access to the family home, hence him staying with his girlfriend for the majority of the summer. Brian vehemently denied having anything to do with the gruesome murders of his mother and father. It was reported by police that Brian believed himself capable of outsmarting the charges in front of him. D.I. Williams stated, quote, He was growing in confidence with the police. He felt that perhaps he could outwit us in the long term. Brian was charged with murder and was due to stand trial. However, the charge was dropped after he pleaded guilty to the lesser charge of manslaughter on the, grand, on the grounds of dis, diminished responsibility following his diagnosis of narcissistic personality disorder. Simply put, Brian flew into a rage when his parents attempted to stop him from fulfilling the fantasy and holiday he had created due to his disorder. June 29, 2005, Brian was sentenced to life imprisonment. Theoretically, Brian could have been eligible for parole after serving just over five and a half years in a psych- in, uh, if a psychiatrist deemed him fit for release, but the judge stated that, quote, present evidence suggests that conclusion is unlikely to ever be reached. In 2016, after an oral parole hearing, the parole board granted Brian's release. Now, on to our second case, which takes us to Kansas. Lowell Lee Andrews was born September 21, 1940 in Walcott, Kansas, to successful farmers William and Opal Andrews. Lowell was the youngest of two his older sibling being a sister, Jenny Marie, who was two years older. Lowell was described as being the nicest boy in Wolcott by the local newspaper, but actually harbored deep, dark thoughts and fantasies of poisoning his family so he could move to Chicago to become a gangster and hitman. After graduating high school, Lowell began attending the University of Kansas, where he studied zoology and played bassoon in the university band. Sophomore year, Thanksgiving break, 1958, Lowell and his sister Jenny returned home. On the evening of November 28th, Jenny Marie and her parents were watching television while Lowell was upstairs in his bedroom reading Please pardon me if I butcher this. The Brothers Karamazov. Once finished with the novel, Lowell shaved, put on a suit, and went downstairs carrying a twenty-two rifle and a revolver. Stepping into the room, Lowell turned on the light and fired upon his family. 
Jenny Marie was shot between the eyes first. Next, turning his weapon on his parents, Lowell shot his father, William, twice and his mother, Opal, three times. As Opal moved towards her murderous son, Lowell shot her three more times. William attempted to crawl towards the kitchen, but Lowell shot at him repeatedly with the revolver. William had been shot a total of 17 times by his son. After staging the home to make it look like a burglary gone wrong, Lowell left the family farm and drove to the nearby town of Lawrence to build his alibi. First, Lowell went to his apartment in Lawrence, saying he needed to pick up his typewriter so he could work on an essay. Next, Lowell drove to the Grenada Movie Theater to watch the movie Mardi Gras starring Pat Boone. After the film, Lowell drove to the Massachusetts Street Bridge, where the Kansas River runs, to dismantle and dispose of the weapons he used to slaughter his family. Finally, Lowell drove back to the family farm to call police and inform them of his horrific discovery. When police arrived, they noted that Lowell seemed unfazed and unconcerned over the massacre of his family. The responding officers noted that Lowell was in the yard playing with the family dog. This is where I'm going to introduce our dumpster juice alert. Yes, I bought a cowbell for you guys. That's dumpster juice. I'm going to sit outside and play with the fucking dog. See, I was wondering when I was going to lose my fucking shit. Here she goes. So, the police arrive and he's outside playing with the fucking dog. Lowell protested his innocence until the family minister, Pastor Virtio C. Dameron of Grandview Baptist Church in Kansas City, Kansas, was able to persuade Lowell to confess. Lowell confessed again with the dumpster juice alert. He confessed, saying that he killed his family to inherit the family farm and his father's one... $1,800 in savings. Later saying, quote, I'm not sorry and I'm not glad I did it. I just don't know why I did it. I didn't even feel anything as they died. Because you're fucking dumpster juice. Lowell pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity, but was convicted for the triple homicide and sentenced to death. Lowell's request for clemency was denied by Kansas Governor John Anderson Jr., Despite further appeals, the death sentence was upheld by the U.S. Supreme Court, and on November 30, 1962, 22-year-old Lowell Lee Andrews was executed by hanging. His final meal consisted of two fried chickens with sides of mashed potatoes, green beans, and pie a la mode. At the time of his hanging, Lowell had no last words. Interesting side note is that Lowell was on death row at the same time as Richard Hickok and Perry Smith, the Cutler family murderers, who were the subjects of Truman Capote's 1965 novel In Cold Blood. There were several pages in the book that refer to Lowell. Now, our next crime takes place in Bellevue, Idaho. Sarah Marie Johnson was born January 24, 1987, to Alan Scott and Diane Johnson. Now, Diane had a son named Matt who was born in 1981 from 
a different relationship, but Matt was raised by both Diane and Alan, basically, like, as a Johnson, like, it, I didn't see anything that said that he had a relationship with his biological father, all I saw was that Alan and Diane had been longtime sweethearts, who, at the time of their deaths, had been together for 20 years, and the reason why I bring up Matt is because simple math and also because later on something that I forgot to put in the script I will bring up because of something that Sarah said in reference to Matt. The Johnson family lived in a lovely and loving home on the outskirts of Sun Valley, Idaho. Alan was a part owner in a successful landscaping business while Diane worked in a medical clinic doing like taxing taxes and billing or something like that um from the outside looking in the johnson family was picture perfect sarah was a daddy's girl um matt was you know i guess a mama's boy kind of sorta and it would be said that she and her mother absolutely butted heads as her mother quote unquote chose preference of her son over sarah the two constantly argued over this, that, the other, um, you know, teenage angst, growing pains, you know, um, the parents felt like this too shall pass, you know, um, she's a girl, I mean, I'm not trying to give that a pass, but, you know, I mean, I myself was a 16-year-old girl, and I'm the mother of a 16-year-old girl. I know what kind of fucking roller coaster that shit show can be. So, you know, but, you know, you know, sometimes you get along with, you know, your daughter, sometimes you don't. I get along with mine, so I'm good with that. But Sarah and her mother did not get along. Sarah was 16 years old, and she was a student at Wood River High School in Haley, Idaho at the time of this incident. So, at some point, she met and began a relationship with a 19-year-old, okay, and I have to mention it because it's throughout all of everything. (sighs) Okay, so she got involved with a 19-year-old undocumented Mexican immigrant named Bruno Santos, who lived on, quote-unquote, the wrong side of town, like, in a poor neighborhood in an impoverished apartment building with his mom this is everything that everybody kept saying to me this shit doesn't matter but i guess because sarah came from a more affluent family to them uh class mattered and also more importantly this man's age because yes he was technically an adult she was a child technically and so on a statutory level yeah i can understand but like bro like why we gotta talk about him being undocumented i'll tell you why because spoiler alert the parents threatened to have him deported based off of you know you know if they notified the police that statutory rape had occurred they knew that he would be deported back to mexico Oh, it sounds so fucking ugly. Dumpster juice. Anyways, so Alan and Diane highly disapproved of the relationship between Bruno and their daughter because Bruno was a high school dropout from the wrong side of the tracks. Family argued constantly. Relatives and friends, you know, feared that the relationship between Sarah and Bruno would tear the family apart. 
Even Sarah's friends thought that she could do far better than Bruno. Sarah's friend... Sorry, girl, if I messed this up. Serena? Stark? Serena. Girl. Okay, the G moves in silence like lasagnas. Alright, Serena. I see you, girl. That was a little wing quote. You're welcome. Okay, her friend Serena Stark said... I felt she could quote I felt she could do a lot better. <clears throat> she was a, he was a high school dropout and was selling drugs and she was from a nice family. It just didn't seem like it was right. So that Labor Day weekend, the Johnsons had guests, Diane's sister and brother-in-law. When Alan and Diane learned that Sarah wasn't where she said she was going to be spending the night at or the weekend, but in fact was at her boyfriend's apartment. Mommy and daddy lost their shit. So like Alan goes, Hey Abraham, you wanna ride out with me and let's go get your niece because she's over here at this nineteen year old guy's apartment and this is statutory rape and I'm not with it and he's a piece of shit and he needs to be sent away. He needs to be deported, blah, 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 blah. So, like, the brother-in-law was like, yo, bro, like, I'm with you, but, like, cooler heads will prevail. So, like, you can't go up in there like a wrecking ball. You need to just go up in there, say your piece, you know, peaceably, get your daughter, and take her ass home. Okay? That's how that conversation went, right? So then they roll up in there they get her sarah is like surprised and embarrassed to find you know to be found in that state by her father and uncle okay now alan's brother-in-law would say that the rest of the weekend was calm in the johnson home however alan and diane had heated you know had heatedly discussed notifying the police again of the statutory rape you know between bruno and sarah but the police would never hear from either of the Johnsons on the matter. On Tuesday, September 2nd, at approximately 6.20 a.m., hearing Alan entering the shower, Sarah tucked her blonde hair inside a plastic shower cap. Sarah then put on her pink bathrobe, but she put it on backside to the front and slid on a latex glove and a brown leather glove. Sarah took a .264 caliber Winchester Model 70 bolt action rifle from the guest house as its occupant was out of town and crept into her parents' bedroom. As Diane slept, Sarah shot her in the head. Her mother's blood, and blood brain, and skull fragments splattering approximately 30 feet onto Sarah's back bedroom wall. Hearing the gunshot, naked and wet, Alan began to emerge from the bathroom when Sarah shot him in the chest right above his heart, the single bullet entering the shower tile. As Alan lied dying on the floor next to his bed, Sarah flushed the shower cap she was wearing down the toilet, placed two knives at the foot of her parents' bed, and one on her brother Matt's bed. Matt was away at college. She put the knives there so that she could throw the police off and 
the police would think that it was like a gangland style murder. FYI. Because I don't have time to describe that shit later. Sarah then discarded the latex and leather glove she was wearing. And then the 25 caliber shells and her pink bathrobe outside for the morning's garbage pickup. And then she ran to the neighbor's house for help. Detectives thought it was off that Sarah sat on the fence and watched as the coroner wheeled out her parents and body bags. Crime scene tape strewn around her home. Seeing the garbage truck was just a house away from potentially collecting and dumping possible evidence, the truck was stopped and the contents of the Johnson garbage was saved. Sarah initially told police that she was asleep in her room with the door closed when she heard the first gunshot pierce through the air. That's when she snuck out of her home and ran to the neighbor's house for help. When Sarah returned to school the next day, her friends made note that she wasn't behaving like a girl whose parents had just been murdered. Hmm. Sarah was said to be con- Because, you know what? You know exactly what time it is. Dumpster juice. Here's what she was more concerned with. She was more concerned with keeping her hair and nail appointment the inheritance and life insurance money she knew she was going to collect from the deaths of her parents. She was also, like, super-duper obsessed with Bruno and getting, like, basically, like, having friends relay messages to her boo that, like, you know, she still loved him and, you know, she was still gonna be with him no matter what, um, because she felt like she was under surveillance. Because guess what, bitch, you are? Anyways, sorry. So, she was, like, super not, like, in shock and super not, like, grieving. So, you know, the hairs on the back of people's necks kind of stood up a little bit. Sarah also talked about her engagement to Bruno and the apartment she wanted to get because she didn't like living with her mother, sister, and her husband. The same aunt and uncle who had spent Labor Day weekend at the Johnson home. While Sarah was fantasizing about the fortune she was going to inherit from her parents, detectives were trying to figure out what had happened at the Johnson home. Matt was eliminated as a suspect as he was away at college. The next suspect was the gentleman who rented the Johnson's guest house for years. The high-powered weapon used to kill the Johnsons belonged to him, and the scope for the weapon was found on his bed. After confirming he was 150 miles away in Boise with family, he was cleared as a suspect. Detectives next turned their attention on to 19-year-old Bruno Santos, Sarah Johnson's boyfriend, or fiancé, whatever. Bruno told detectives that he had proposed to Sarah, and this was actually done like at her volleyball dinner in front of her friends, and she had accepted. Um... He and his mother both claimed that Bruno had been home asleep at the time of the murder. When his clothing, shoes, and DNA were taken in for examination, they were surprised to have found absolutely no shred of evidence that he was in the Johnson home on the morning of the double homicide. Hold on, I need to take a sip, ski. Having eliminated a third suspect, detectives turned their attention to the only other known person to have been in the home at the time of the murder. Detectives learned that Sarah had access to the rented guest house because she often cleaned it for the renter, giving her knowledge of the weapon that was housed in his closet. 
Next, detectives looked at the clothing Sarah was wearing. There was no blood splatter or traces found on her pajama pants or the navy blue t-shirt with green paint splotches, nor was there anything found on the front of the bathrobe, which was confiscated from, you know, the garbage and, you know, confirmed to be hers. Forensic scientists checked the back of the bathrobe where they were able to identify hundreds of tiny specks of blood, like high-velocity blood splatter caused by a high-powered rifle. Forensic scientists then tested the inside of the bathrobe in search of microscopic flakes of green paint that would have transferred from Sarah's t-shirt. The green paint was found. See, Sarah's DNA was also found inside of the latex glove that she discarded. It's also noted that Sarah's shoulder also had a bruise consistent with sustaining the kick from firing the weapon because she didn't have it, like, properly, like, screwed in there good enough. You know what I mean? Mm. If you know, you know. She was arrested on October 29th, 2003 as an adult for the double homicide of her parents. On June 30th, 2005, 18-year-old Sarah was sentenced to two concurrent life imprisonment sentences without the possibility of parole. So, there are true crime episodes that cover this case. I utilized Forensic Files Season 12, Episode 24, Disrobed on Peacock for some of my information. But there are also episodes, you know, uh, Snapped, Deadly Women, Killer Women, and others give that bitch goog and finally let's jump straight into what had happened on october 31st 2010 devin griffin 16 years old had just returned to the home he shared with his mother brother and stepfather on this sunday devin had spent his morning performing in the morning in morning church services He spent the prior night at his biological father's home and returned home in the morning to quickly change into clothes for church. His stepbrother, William B.J. Lisk Jr., was at the house that morning, but Devin thought nothing of it. By now, 1.30 p.m., when Devin returned home, he found the house to be eerily silent. Wanting to decompress from his morning's activities at church, the teenager began to play video games, but it began to, to nag at him how quiet the house was. At this time of day, his mother would usually be milling about the house doing something. Devin began to search the home for his mother and stepfather. When he entered their room, he thought the couple were playing a Halloween prank on him, as they were both laying in bed with a maroon blanket covering them entirely. Devin tried to get them to awaken, but they didn't move. He moved over to his mom's side of the bed, and he saw that her leg was poking out from underneath the blanket, and he shook it a few times. But again, there was no movement. When Devin pulled back the maroon blanket, he made the gruesome discovery. There was a mess of blood and brains covering his mother and stepfather's pillows. In a panic, realizing that his parents had been murdered, Devin ran from the home and called his aunt, who called police when she arrived. When police arrived, they found that William Lisk had been shot five times in the head and face, and his wife Susan was raped and then shot three times in close range. 
when police attempted to enter the bedroom of 23-year-old Derek Griffin, they found the door locked. After kicking it in, they found Derek lying on his side in bed facing the wall with what would be found to be blunt force trauma to his head. Detectives found a bloody claw hammer and muddy footprints inside of the home. On the outside, there were muddy footprints near the family pond and on the deck. With a solid timeline for Devin established, detectives immediately focused their attention on the only other person who was in the Lisk home that morning, BJ. BJ was an extremely troubled young man. Neighbors long suspected that he was responsible for the killings and torture of neighborhood pets. He was super pissed off that his father had married Susan in 2001, basically saying that she was trying to, like, change things and impose her way and will upon them. In 2002, at the age of 16, William Sr. called police on BJ because he was threatening self-harm. In October 2004, BJ and Susan got into an altercation that resulted in BJ striking her hard in the chest. In December of the same year, BJ was charged with felonious assault and robbery for stealing his stepmother's keys after hitting her with a coffee mug. Being found incompetent to stand trial, those charges were dropped. After being moved into a Sandusky group home for mental health patients, BJ had at least three more run-ins recorded, including a physical altercation with his father. When BJ was 18, he had also been kicked out of the home after attacking Susan while she was in the shower. So, since Susan like since Susan and William had been married, BJ had lashed out quite a bit, but William refused to turn his back on his son. William filed for guardianship over his adult son in 2006, and in 2007, BJ was diagnosed as a bipolar schizophrenic. The week prior to the triple homicide, William had taken vacation time from work to take BJ on a deer hunting trip. The duo returned from their hunting trip less than 24 hours before the murders. The two got together with a few other friends and began drinking. Because they'd been drinking and William didn't want to drive his son back to, you know, the mental health home in Sandusky, um, because, you know, I'm sure like it was getting late, all this other stuff, William fixed up the couch for BJ and let him sleep over. Michelle Gridell, a neighbor, said a neighbor said that she quote heard what sounded like gunshots at about 6:30 a.m. October 31st. After Devin came and went, BJ took the family's F-150 to the hunting cabin he and his father had just returned from. He was at the cabin for less than an hour when he was arrested by Carroll County Sheriff's deputies. Sounds kind of like Chai Vang, right? Remember? Because he was, like, arrested not long after he finally made it, you know, to that one cabin. Um, And, I mean, like, you would assume that this cabin was, like, quite a bit of distance away. So, the time that Devin went to church... From the time that Devin got to church and did everything and then came home and discovered his parents were murdered and the police were notified, you know, 
Okay, so, you know, a nice chunk of time has gone by, probably about five or six hours or so, and um, they probably figured he would be going back to that cabin there, you know, because there's ties there or something like that, and so that's where he was picked up, you know, not long after he got there. Uh, so, in 2011, BJ pleaded guilty to three counts of aggravated murder. Before sentencing, BJ apologized for murdering his father, stepmother, and stepbrother, blaming his actions on his mental illness and Satan. In exchange for this plea, prosecutors agreed not to seek the death penalty, but instead recommended that he be remanded to a life sentence without the possibility of parole. Less than four years later, on March 31, 2015, the body of 29-year-old William B.J. Lisk Jr. was found deceased inside of his cell at Ross Correctional Institute from a self-inflicted injury. So, what had happened is this. A whole lot of fucked up shit. That's what happened. No, seriously, what had happened is this. Not about to delve into the heads of kids who had multiple levels of psychosis, you know, different kinds of psychiatric issues, mental illnesses. Um, okay, so here's what I didn't mention now that I'm going back. We're gonna go down this down the we're gonna go down the numbers. For one, we had Brian Blackwell. Brian Blackwell came from a well-to-do affluent family. Mommy and Daddy put him on a pedestal. He was their little prince. He was going to do all of these grand things. He was going to be the superb specimen. And he was going to reflect well on their parenting and on their stock. And upbringing, all of that good shit. Okay? He was the creme de la creme. He was the golden child. He was also a fucking narcissist. And he created a fantasy world where the grandeur that his parents expected of him, that wasn't enough. He had to create fantasies where he was bigger than that. So it led to financial fraud. It led to him lying to his girlfriend about what he was and, you know, trying to keep up appearances by spending 30,000 pounds on a three-week U.S. holiday, you know, jet-setting, you know, from luxury presidential suites in Manhattan, Miami, Barbados, San Francisco, living the high life, uh, lying about endorsement deals, buying her, you know, expensive cars, all sorts of shit under fraudulence, you know, and, you know, the house of cards was starting to crumble because, when he applied for those 13 credit cards in his father's name and his mom, you know, spoke with the bank managers about their concerns with his behavior and all of that other stuff, you know, the cards were starting to crumble. And he knew that if his parents couldn't stop him from going to the U.S., when he came back, they were going to probably out him to his girlfriend, and he was also going to have to suffer the repercussions of his actions from all of the financial fraud that he had committed, because he was going to have to do some reparating for all of that. So, you know, he snapped. 
and he murdered his parents and then he went on about his business and he continued to lie and it snowballed because the neighbor smelled the bodies you know like what like a month and a half two months later something like that and so you know but then he did do his time and while the judge felt that he could not be healed psych you know psychiatrically speak you know from a psychiatric standpoint uh he was released so we hope that he is living his best life wherever he is doing whatever he's doing and that he has shed his narcissistic ways that got him into the predicament that he found himself in in the beginning in the first place number two Lowell Andrews. Lowell Lee Andrews. Wow. Lowell Lee Andrews, to me, um, was a psychopath. Like, he was devoid of, like, any give a fuck about anything. But at the same time, he was also a narcissist. And I believe that he and Brian kind of similarly, you know, had, you know, that same kind of mirror where he wanted to, you know, where Lowell wanted to become a hitman and gangster in Chicago. He read that novel, which I gave it a quick Google. Could not for the life of me quite find an appropriate overview that could encapsulate what this book was about. So if you've read it, somebody let me know. Somebody drop me the cliff notes. That's how old I am. Because, ugh. I couldn't get with it, but from what I could grasp, there were some heavy themes, um, you know, that kind of echoed what he did to his family within that piece of literature, um, but definitely the thought of him inherit, wanting to inherit the farm and his father's savings, that actually sounds more spot on than just, you know... I wanted to become a gangster and a hitman. I wanted to be a part of a family, a crime family, a syndicate in Chicago. I don't fucking buy that shit too hard. Like, I mean, but no. I mean, he was very smart because he knew to establish an alibi. He went through the paces to do so. But, I mean, come on, bro, you were in the yard playing with the fucking dog, and you didn't give three fucks about the three family members that were murdered, which tells me that you had some kind of narcissistic, you know, disassociation with what was going on in that home. Number three, Sarah Marie Johnson. Well, I've got many thoughts about Ms. Johnson to my... to. For, 16-year-old Kimberly sees you as a fucking snot who was having a petulant fucking tantrum because your mom and dad didn't want you getting caught up and throwing away your fucking life by running around with a grown-ass man who didn't necessarily mean you any good. 
definitely, probably, most likely wasn't going to be able to afford you the lifestyle that you grew accustomed to at, you know, the hands of mommy and daddy. Absolutely, most likely, positively, was most likely going to put a baby in you when you were too young. And the last thing they wanted was to see your future thrown away. But you had a whole ass little fucking shit fit because you thought your shit didn't stink. That's what the fuck had happened there on that one. You thought your shit didn't stink. You thought you were hot. You thought you were hot shit because you had a 19 year old on your jock. Game peeps game. I see you. I see you. You thought you were the shit. And then you thought you were going to just like take your parents out and inherit all of this money. Then you threw some shady shit out there when you said some shit about how your dad had uh, tweaked the inheritance and that your brother Matt wasn't going to get shit because he wasn't your father's kid to begin with. That was really fucked up that it's on the record that you said that and that I could quote you roughly for saying that. That's really fucked up. And that tells me everything I need to know about you as a person. You are selfish, self-serving. You murdered your parents in cold fucking blood so that you could, what, gain from your parents, take their money, inherit whatever bullshit fantasy you created in your 16-year-old mind. But you took away the parents of your brother because you're a selfish asshole. Okay. And you and your mom butted heads. Okay. You're a fucking asshole. And a double, you know, a concurrent life serve sentence. Good job. Without the possibility of parole. Thank goodness. Because, bitch, dumpster fucking juice. You're trash to me personally. Because the way that you... And then, like... No. No. No, 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 no. Now. On to... The Halloween murder of the Lisks and uh, Griffin. Wow. Super fucking tragic. That, And I hope that Devin has received a lot of help and support in healing from this uh the article that i initially found on this was the headline said something along the lines of he thought that this was a halloween prank so if devin thought that this was a halloween prank you know what i mean like the layers of trauma the holiday Knowing what his stepbrother did to his mother, his stepfather, and his brother. Uh, you know, knowing that he saw him the morning of the murder. You know, in a quick, you know, in and out fashion. I really hope that Devin got the help that he needs. Because he is the final, you know, he he and the family members, they're the, they're the victims here. You know, um, with BJ succumbing to his mental illness whilst incarcerated and committing suicide, um, you know, there is some layer of finality to this case. However, it's tragic 
because of the fact that, you know, BJ suffered from so many different issues mentally and that whilst they were being addressed, everything still came to a head, you know, um, when dad, I guess it was kind of like when dad let his guard down, you know, um, I feel like this was actually really spur of the, mm, I feel like something snapped in his head. I feel like this wasn't something that was like super premeditated. I think that this, this really, I think he really did just have a psychotic break um, because he was a bipolar schizophrenic and being in that home where it was always just battle back like battle cap and they were always fighting and stuff like that. I feel as though it was easier for this to happen, you know, this, it, God, it was, it literally was like wrong you know what I mean like if they hadn't been drinking he wouldn't have been discouraged most likely from driving his son to Sandusky where he would have been back at the mental health home and then he would have been home with Susan where they would have been safe and so you know and so Derek also wouldn't have been murdered um, and Devin wouldn't be traumatized. It's just a series of unfortunate events, happenstance, fucked uppery, mental illness. Um, on this one, I can't even really go in on BJ because he's bipolar schizophrenic, and that's that's far different than being a narcissist. Um, and he took his own life. I mean, he had a history of self-harm, threatening self-harm, and violence, you know, leading up to it. It was just the perfect storm that was brewing. Whew. All right, guys. Fuck that shit. We're done. Like, like, happy Halloween. Happy spooky season. Check your candy. Don't make tummy aches happen, you know, we can easily overindulge on those peanut butter cups and all that other shit, uh, have a great one, and, like, let's vibe out to this beautiful outro music, I'm Kimberly, your host of What Had Happened, a true crime podcast, I will be seeing you back in November with another ass load of lesser known true crime stories again thank you thank you thank you for listening liking sharing subscribing telling everybody screaming it from the rafters and now here comes that outro music